Hi everyone, welcome to the Absolute Jiu-Jitsu Debate. We discuss using ideas from sports science and other performance sports to improve how we train and develop in Jiu-Jitsu. All of this was originally released on video, where we often put graphics and diagrams over the talking heads. So if you want the full experience, check us out by searching Absolute MMA St Kilda Melbourne on YouTube. Otherwise, enjoy the show. I'm here with physiotherapist and ADCC competitor Olivia Giles and strength and conditioning coach Ben King, discussing strength and conditioning for jiu-jitsu. In our last video, we explored the role SNC plays in physical preparation for jiu-jitsu, which groups might benefit most from strength and conditioning off the mat, and some of those common training methods. Now we're going to jump right back into the discussion where we focus on strength and conditioning for the recreational grappler. We're going to go through in this podcast and we're going to talk a little bit about Liv because she's a great case study for things. So Liv, can I just ask you very quickly, why mm-hmm. specifically do you do physical preparation work away from the mat? What is it that, that drives you to do that? Recently, it's been two main goals. So one of them is uh, continual rehab and injury prevention. So in 2016, uh, it was the first time I tore my ACL in my knee. And uh, I went the conservative way, so I never had surgery on it. And that requires constant, um, like pretty much constant work. So I haven't really had any time off uh, by a few weeks here and there of doing constant rehab or prehab, whatever it is now. Um, so it keeps me on the mat and it keeps me safe. And it, I feel like it prevents me from further injury or more from like permanent injury or more permanent injury, I should say. Um so that's my main goal that's been there for, you know, pretty much since 2016. And the other one was uh, in preparation for ADCC, uh, I had to bulk up a little bit. So uh, I used to, when I was a cyclist, I used to sit around 60 kilos when I was a sprinter. And then since um, 2013 Worlds, Blue Belt Worlds, I've dropped down to light feather, which is um, in the gi, weigh 53 and a half kilos. And I kind of stayed that weight for a very long time. So just training a lot, I'm a very active person. Um, So I weighed between 52, 54 kilos for a very, very long time. Uh, For ADCC, there's just two division for women. One of them is under 60 kilos. The other one is over 60 kilos. And both Lockie and I felt like that if I go into that division, weighing 53 kilos and being seven kilos lighter than the girls cutting to 60 so some of them might be 70 cutting to 60 um that's that's actually not only dangerous but there's you know i'm just not putting myself at the um i'm not doing everything i can to actually achieve my goal of qualifying and doing well at adcc so that's something that took me a little while like being a gymnast and always i guess being a light feather or even a rooster weight i've always kind of liked being small and i liked um how fast I can move and also maybe even how I look. So it was a big hurdle like um, four years ago when I did the trials, I didn't quite get there. Lockie kept saying, you know, you have to get at least to 55 kilos. And I was like, I don't think I can. That's so big, you know, and I actually got over that and sort of went right in order to achieve my goals and to keep myself safe. That's what I have to do. And um, yeah, and that's why we, we changed the program before the trials to decide to actually go and put on the bulk and it wasn't just the snc i did um consult with my dietitian who helped me with my cutting and he pretty much just said you know just eat whatever just sprinkle your fried ice cream with more nutella and just keep eating it so it was yeah. <laughs> again unhealthy but it was great fun <laughs> yeah that's interesting so i think the key take-home message from that is the fact that you are doing physical preparation because you have a specific goal to to hit you know the one probably most important goal is to is to make sure that your knee 
your knee uh, continues to function properly. And the second one is to put on muscle mass. Well, it could be any kind of mass, but certainly muscle mass would be the most appropriate (laughs) thing in order to make sure that you hit that weight. So I think that's great. You've got some specific goals. And then we can talk about if we were using you as a case study. Okay, these are the specific goals. These are some of the limitations that Liv has or the, the constraints of your training. How do we take those goals plus the constraints and come up with a training program that satisfies all of those factors and allows you to train for jujitsu six times or have, you know, six days a week or however many times a week that you're training. And we'll look at that uh, a little bit later in the podcast. But now I think what we should do is we should turn our attention and we should, we should talk about uh, pr- uh, physical preparation for the recreational grappler. And as we talked about before, you know, a recreational grappler for us is probably someone that's training two, three, maybe four times a week. Uh, and they're doing it more for fun than for, for, the, for, them for, um, than for competition. And as as a result of that, they're probably going to be a, a little bit older, you know. And I definitely think, you know, if you talk to the guys at BJJ Fanatics, they'll tell you that a huge proportion of their um, audience are people that are a little bit older, um, that are doing jiu-jitsu, that, that want to get better at it. And these are also the same kind of people that are going to want to do add a little bit of S&C into their program in order to uh, develop some other quali- qualities there, there as well, right? So let's talk a little bit about them. Now, if we do, we can further break that down into two parts. We can break it down into the, the people that have done S&C before, and they're going to be asking, okay, I've previously done S&C because I used to be a rugby player. I used to be a netball player. I used to be a basketball player or a uh, gymnast, for example. What do I need to change now with my S&C in order to get better? And the other group will be, and I think this is big in jiu-jitsu because I see a lot of jiu-jitsu people as being people that actually, they've come to jiu-jitsu and maybe they haven't actually done another sport before, but now they've found jiu-jitsu, they, they love the fact that it's, uh, you know, it requires you to think, it's got a high skill component, and so they've got into it and they've never actually done S&C before. So we're going to talk about like how we can help these two populations uh, who are recreational grapplers to improve a little bit, a little bit more. So Tom, as our resident recreational gra- grappler, but also with a extensive knowledge in SNC, um, if you were just beginning SNC as a as a recreational grappler, grappler, um, how would you go about it? What would you do? What are some of the things that you'd be focusing on? Yeah, so I think one of the really important things to understand is that if you're going to do SNC as a method of physical preparation for a sport, that's quite different to being somebody that's just going to the to the gym to improve their. Um, you know, just to improve the way that they look, yeah? Um, you've, you've got to remember that even though you are recreational, you are probably doing jiu-jitsu three times a week. Now you're going to add in some strength and conditioning that might be two or three days or two or three extra sessions a week, which means when you add all those sessions together, now you're doing six training sessions a week, which might not sound like a huge amount, but trust me, once you go above three or four training sessions a week, your chances of injury will increase because you're not having as much recovery. Plus, you're probably working or doing these other things as well. So when you start doing SNC as a method to improve physical preparation for your jiu-jitsu, you might not have to train in your strength conditioning sessions as hard as somebody that was only doing going to the gym like three or four times a week. In fact, you probably can't because you've got to save some of your energy to use in your jiu-jitsu training as well, right? So that would be the first thing that I would say. And if I was training you as a, as a personal trainer and I only was focused on improving your physical fitness as an SNC coach, I would definitely train you way, way harder than I would train you as someone that I know is also doing jiu-jitsu three times a week. And I think that's an important thing to consider mm-hmm. because I often see people, for example, saying, oh, you know, I feel uh, a little bit overweight. I'm out of shape. I'm going to take up running to get better for jiu-jitsu. And then what they do is they take up running and then they start getting 
shin splints, you know, the fronts of their shins start hurting, they start getting hip pain because they're using running, which has its associated injury problems uh, as a method of training. And they're not realizing that they're also doing jujitsu as well. And overall, their body is getting uh, overloaded. So that would be the key take home message that I'd point out to people and also be why when you hear some of these recommendations for recreational person taking up uh, strength and conditioning, they're going to be slightly less, uh, going to sound slightly less hard than what you would imagine a top level athlete might do. So even when you look at Liv's training program and you see it, you're going to be going, oh, I thought she was a professional athlete. Maybe I'll expect her to do more. And the reality is that top level athletes, they do what they need to do in the gym or what they need to do is physical preparation as of their technical training. They don't do everything they possibly could do in the world uh, to improve because they've got to try and improve both things at once. I just want to jump on that point, Tom, because I think it's really relevant in that in terms of physical preparation, there's, a le- there's an element of that the whole point is to reach physical minimum and then let your technical, tactical uh, and mental and emotional execution win you the match. So in terms of whenever you evaluate or see a professional's training, exactly what you said is they're doing what they need to do. They're reaching a minimum level of performance and then letting their skill decide the result. So in preparation for this podcast, I went on Instagram and and I made Loki ask the question as well, just because his reach is far uh, bigger than mine. Um, so what are the, I know a lot of especially uh, recreational guys always ask us questions, what we do for strength and conditioning. And that's something Loki won't answer because he doesn't do any. And, and people also ask why I do it and he doesn't do it, but um, everyone you know, we, we were really interested to know, like we have topics that we love discussing, but what does, uh, what do people out there want to know about strength and conditioning and jiu-jitsu? So uh, we've got a few questions prepared uh, that were the most common. Um, so the first one was, what body parts do you concentrate on the most? So in terms of my application of, of S&C within jiu-jitsu, I think like, Generally speaking, the compound lifts are going to be your best bang for your buck. So things that use multi-joints, um, fairly stable and, and you can lift the heaviest with. So squats, deadlifts, chin-ups, rows, you know, things that I talked about before. But in terms of specifically applying it to a jiu-jitsu body, I think the hips and lower back are areas that are going to cop a lot of pounding, like both through range, but just in terms of general load they're going to take. So working on your posterior chain, so hammies, glutes and lower back, uh, working on your hip mobility, which... It might sound fancy, but just doing a, a really good and deep squat might work that just as effectively as, you know, a 90-90 stretch or, or some, you know, silly stretch you've got from somewhere. So, um, and then the third thing is bridging. So hip thrusting strength, I think, can offer a particular movement um, that you get in the gym that you can kind of replicate on the mat. But um, like I said, the simple things will cover off a lot of these. So don't think I'm, I'm going uh, crazy with drills or anything. Second area would be uh, shoulder and upper back strength. So the, the shoulder joint itself is going to get cranked. It's going to be pulled in different positions it doesn't want to go into. So just being strong around that. Um, pulling strength generally, like you're, you're either holding onto the other athlete or the gi, or you're pulling them towards you to make an advantage. Um, and then kind of supporting those two areas. But generally speaking, is having good thoracic mobility through extension flexion and rotation um it's going to give you good support for your shoulder and upper back strength um but also give you good positioning skills again saying that what's going to give you good pulling strength what's going to give you good shoulder drawing strength is simple things like chin-ups and rows and bench press and push-ups uh all done correctly with really good technique and form some general resilience training i think i would apply this is my last point for for jiu-jitsu knee ankle and elbow resilience they're all areas of the body that um 
are going to be leveraged or pressured uh, in the sport. Um, you know, arm bars, leg locks, etc., all things that are going to be used by competitors to take an advantage. So being generally stronger around those. And I'm not saying that if you do a certain amount of uh, bicep curls or a certain amount of knee extensions, that's going to eliminate all uh, injury problems from jiu-jitsu or it's going to, you know, you're going to be able to bicep curl your way out of an armbar. Like that's not going to happen. But generally speaking, if those areas are a little bit stronger, then they're going to, one, recover from any uh, any load they take better. And two, you might be able to resist those positions a little bit better. So I think, yeah, they're the kind of key areas that I'd look at. Um, but I think, like I said at the start, the compound lifts are going to cover off most of those and get you best bang for your buck in terms of applying training. And so following on from that, you mentioned um, the push and pull. I, I guess in jiu-jitsu, we don't really push at all. We, we pull. So one of the questions was uh, push versus pull uh, and why? Or why, why would you even do push? Sure. So I think in any context, like it's, 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 I, I like the, the thought discussion of, of if you could only choose one, which one would you choose? But in reality, in the real world, we can do both. So for general good shoulder movement and how through uh, chest and thoracic health, doing both is going to be beneficial. Um, however, given the sport does have a lot of pulling, I probably would look towards a pulling bias. So pulling both vertically and horizontally. So like uh, chin up, lat pull down um, kind of area and seated row, barbell row, whatever kind of row you would want to look at in terms of your pulling variations. And I think the pushing variations are going to give you some elbow resilience as well. So whenever you push, there's going to be an element of elbow extension. Um, so push-ups, bench press, et cetera, et cetera, is going to give you um, some kind of resilience around those joints. So I think as an underpinning point, the reason why you would do both of those is being strong and mobile around both your shoulder joint in itself, but also in the scapula, which helps, or the shoulder blade, I should say, um, which supports it at the back. So you don't have to choose one or the other, but you may leverage your training to support one area, which will be a little bit more specific to the sport. You've talked there about jiu-jitsu, right? So jiu-jitsu is a full body sport as opposed to something, let's say, like lives track cycling. I'm not saying upper body isn't important in, in track cycling. It can be at the start, I'm sure. But um, mainly you'd be focused on your legs in track cycling, whereas jiu-jitsu, I think you're, fo- you're focused on the entire body for sure for performance perspective. And as well as that, I think a key thing that I think is super important uh, for when you're practicing jiu-jitsu would be mobility and strength within the the spinal column and also the the hip area as well. You see the prevalence of back injuries in all sports, uh, but in jiu-jitsu as well, there seems to be quite a lot of people have have back issues. And I think when we talk about physical preparation, we we generally people think about strength, but I think it's also about the mobility of uh, different parts of the the spine. And, you know, I mean, Liv can probably talk to this a little bit more. I'd like to hear her thoughts about this, but uh, often when someone, when someone, uh, um, you know, starts doing a sport where they involve spinal flexion and extension like you have in jiu-jitsu, your spine can become stiff uh, in many areas, which means you then have all your hinging happening at one sp- space, one point in the spine. And, and over time, this can you can end up focusing more and more and more force on this one area. So what you, you also need to do, and I believe is very important, is you need to get the f- spine working f- working well so that all areas of the spine and hips, can, can you can distribute the load across the whole area so you have less chances of, of some kind of, of injury happening at a specific point. Liv, can you just talk a little bit about that from a, a physio perspective? Yeah, for sure. So 
definitely spine is one of the low back and, and neck um, for some people thoracic spine as well uh, one of the biggest injury body parts that I've seen from people doing jiu-jitsu. Um, we do like a look and I used to actually do a little circuit um, just to support all the uh, muscles that support your back. So uh, definitely looking after your lats, the fascia of the lats inserts into your uh, lower back, uh, definitely your glutes uh, that will help to generate the power and support, support your spine as well. Um, your rectus and your obliques so your abs uh actually in physio world there's a big um it was a few years ago maybe not so much anymore but uh, a lot of physios were teaching the patients to completely relax the rectus and saying that it's bad to use your abs and concentrate on the uh, the inner muscles of your abs the little muscles um transversus abdominis and so on that are more your support system which which are obviously very important as well but you have to also remember what are the requirements of the sport. And a lot of the times I need to be able to sit up and actually have the obliques and have the strength to, to support my spine and, and, you know, arm drag somebody or whatever it is. So uh, using those as well as um, back extensors as well. Um, and I think from a physio perspective, it's really important to make those body parts strong without putting more load on them. So you don't have to sit there and do Russian twists with, you know, a, a 20 kilo weight away from your spine that would put a high compressive load on the spine. You can actually do all this stuff, um, it, you know, like, like a plank or uh, probably talk to a specialist in specifics, but you can, I think it's really important when we're talking about the spine and strengthening the spine um, to be, to be doing those exercises with that, putting more loads on the spine because you're getting plenty of that in jiu-jitsu. And the other thing would be in terms of conditioning would actually be the mobility and the stretching, like you've mentioned. So um, everyone does hinge at different spots in the spine, like Loki's thoracic spine is extremely flexible. Mine is the lower back. So when we do get overloaded, um, you know, he'll get thoracic spine uh, pain and I'll get lower back pain. Uh, and, and it just means I might have to work through mobility of my thoracic and he might have to work through his lumbar spine. Um, and on top of that, you know, to um, have your hamstrings or your external rotators of the hips more flexible um, so that your spine doesn't have to get the the brunt of the force going through. Um, and same with your neck. When, you're, when your lower back or your thoracic spine is extremely stiff, uh, you will get the load going through your neck, which is quite dangerous. So it does depend a little bit on the individual as well. Absolutely. I think that's good. And one of the other key questions that I came, that was, you know, probably the other most common question that came back after the, the one about what body parts you train is how many times a week should you be doing SNC? So Ben, as a, as a strength conditioning coach, do you think there's a minimum number of times per week that, that, that you have to do SNC and for it to be beneficial from, let's say, uh, especially from like a, a strength training perspective? So for a recreational guy, I think, uh, no, not necessarily. The minimum time could be, you know, as little as one, particularly given like, obviously for most of these, for most recreational people, it's not a career, it's not a vocation. So, I mean, even for the, the pro guys, a lot of them still have to have other jobs on the side and run academies and coach, et cetera. So I think even looking at one to two times a week um, would be fine, um, particularly given the other world of training they're living in. But two to three times, I think we'll cover off, you know, up to 80% of people will fit into a, a beneficial amount being two to three times a week. Um, when they do that around their training, like we'll be very dependent. Um, before or after training would be my preference for any athletes that I work with. Um, 
But Tom, when, when would you structure their training in the week and how often? So, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think, uh, especially strength training, you can train as little as once time per week and get quite a lot of improvement. Uh, and I think the total number of times you're training as a recreational athlete doing a separate session depends on how many time, how many days a week you're training jiu-jitsu. So let's say you're training jiu-jitsu three times a week. That means you have four other days when you're not going to the gym. And, and that, means those, that means you have those four days in which you can recover. And that's the, the key thing, right? At least you can get some recovery. Now, your recovery might not be as good as a professional athlete who is basically doing jiu-jitsu and then resting. Essentially, they probably don't have too many other things in their life. You know, you're going to be going to work and be doing other things. But you've got a couple of options. One is that you could add some strength and conditioning immediately after your, after your, uh, your, your workout at, your, at the gym, right? For example, let's say you've got someone like Absolute MA where you've got a, 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 like a weight training facility directly at your gym. Then you essentially, you've got your three days where you're doing jiu-jitsu and immediately after that session, you could go and you could spend 40 minutes doing, doing strength and conditioning depending on how hard your, your training was, how hard your rolling at the end of the session was. You could go and do some extra stuff afterwards. Another area that I think is very important, actually I think would be very useful, is that you could go before the session, get there 15 minutes early, 20 minutes early, do a good warm-up, and, uh, and that could include mobility drills, it could include some of the stuff we talked about for the spine as well before you start, then you're going to do your jiu-jitsu. So you could take, uh, you could take your, your physical preparation, you could break it down to a couple of chunks that you could do before your, your training session. Now if we're talking about the other days, the days when uh, you're not doing jiu-jitsu, um, where you maybe would be at home, I would try, I would suggest... You know, if you're if you're recreational, I probably wouldn't try and train more than five days per week. And the reason I say that is because there is some evidence from some uh, studies that when people start training more than five days a week, that they don't have two days off a week, that the the risk of injury actually increases quite a lot. And I've seen this specifically in track and field. We've got a couple of studies to to show this. But I definitely think it's something that I would consider. I'd always try and probably have two days off a week. In fact, even with my professional track and field athletes, I try not to train more than five days a week for this particular particular reasons so if i was going to uh if i was going to maximize as a recreational athlete what i was going to do i would simply do three 50 in our training three days a week three 15 to 20 minute sessions before training working on that spinal mobility uh, and some um uh, you know some other factors like core core stability and stuff like that and if you add that up that's 45 minutes which we consider one session then in uh, you have four days off or four days not doing jiu-jitsu. On two of those days, I would go and do a specific strength conditioning, physical preparation style session. And that would probably be the maximum that I'd want to go to because that still gives you two days to spend with family, do, do other things. But that would be my kind of idea. And again, if you see the way that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it from the, from the whole training program perspective, not from what is best for S&C or what is best for jiu-jitsu or what is best. I'm thinking about in terms of, in terms of everything. Liv, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Look, if you're a recreational grappler and you can only train, I think most people start off training once or twice a week and then it builds into three for your recreational guys, sometimes more. I probably, uh, it, it to me, depends what, what's your lifestyle? Do you have family? Do you have kids? Is, you know, can you not get to a gym and, and actually do jujitsu? But I would say twice a week is um, more than enough. You probably don't need to do more. From an injury perspective, um, if you came to jujitsu later in life and you've never done any sport before, I would be very careful. Like you were saying, don't train more than five times a week. Make sure you don't do, you know, three heavy days in the load, like even the load on the tendons that are not used to doing certain, um, certain part of training. Um, you know, you might be, you, you might've gone from zero to doing uh, chin-ups and then working your grip in training and you end up getting tennis elbow uh, and it's just not worth 
then having another month off the mats <laughs> uh, to fix your injuries. So I think stick to two times a week if you have to um, and just pretty much spend your time doing jiu-jitsu and wisely try to not go, not, not go crazy from get-go, I think. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very important point. That's one of the ones that I made earlier made earlier on as well. Is you know it's very important to consider the total load, and it's actually going to be mm. interesting. We'll talk about this a little bit more. When we talk about specificity, but uh, um, you know you don't always have to do everything as specific as you think you do, um, because you're going to get training from, from your jujitsu, and you're going to get you get physical preparation from your jujitsu, and you're going to get physical preparation from your specific physical preparation sessions. Moving on and talking a little bit about that, Ben. Another key question that came out is people asking, well, should I do cardio and weights as part of my, uh, my, my training uh, aside from the mat? What are your thoughts on that? I think considering the amount, of it, the amount of training, I mean, as with anything, it depends. But if you're considering the amount of training that they're doing on the mat and if they're getting enough conditioning stimulus from that, um, my thought would be, okay, well, that's developing probably a reasonable amount of uh, aerobic conditioning. So I'm going to supplement that with more strength and power focused uh, a weights program but again it does it does depend on who they are and how much they are doing um but yeah that, that would be be my take if they're not doing enough on the mat or if they're limited for time they have to read the lunchtime class or whatever uh there would be other elements of cardio conditioning that i would like to throw into their program i think cardio is an interesting one uh, i've never done any extra cardio unless it's to lose weight um with a beginner, I think you definitely need some sort of baseline level of cardio to be able to roll. In saying that, we've seen the fittest guys or girls come into the class, you know, whether they're a crossfitter or a runner or a cyclist, and uh, they still can't get through a five-minute roll without being completely puffed. And, and they always, the conclusion is, I need to do more cardio. I'm too unfit to do another round. And I think my advice would be to... Uh, just roll and and try to roll at a pace where it's sustainable to do at least three rounds of five minutes um, or preferably more. Don't sit out of those rounds. You just have to slow down and go a little bit slower and you will actually get A, more efficient at jiu-jitsu and B, you'll get your cardio from there. In saying that, I do understand that, you know, if you can only train twice a week um, and you only get two or three rounds in, in your class, like in a lot of fundamentals classes, we don't have a, ro a lot of rolling time. And I know some clubs don't even have sparring for white belt beginners. So um, if that's the case, then I would advise you to do a little bit of cardio. But I think you do need to uh, realize that a lot of it is just efficiency in your movement, um, which is just doing more jujitsu. Yeah, Liv, I totally agree with that. I mean, this is something me and Lockie talked about a little bit in our last podcast where we discussed, so what is car what does it mean to have cardio for jiu-jitsu? And you have um, specific conditioning and then you have, have gen generic conditioning. And just like you said, if you're training jiu-jitsu twice a week, uh, that means that basically you have another uh, five days a week where you could do something else. If that's the case, then I would recommend that you do do cardio because you're not going to get enough cardio training from doing your jiu-jitsu. And I myself, there's been times in my life where, uh, you know, I've had very busy work schedules. I've been a little bit overweight uh, and doing cardio really benefited me. I would just do uh, between 20 and 30 minutes steady on a cross trainer. And I found doing that two to three times a week before work had a big difference on how I felt on the mat. However, when I was training four or five days a week and doing jujitsu, that cardio conditioning wasn't an issue for me anymore, in which case the strength training would have been more important. So mm -hmm. I think it's all about balancing that kind of stuff. And I definitely think that you can do both. And also need to, you also need to think about like how hard is this cardio that you're doing, right? So if you're doing some high intensity training uh, cardio workout, you know, where you're smashing yourself, okay, well, 
that's one thing whereas your cardio you can actually get good benefits just from doing a very um you know limited like quite easy cardio uh, that might not take a lot of uh, energy out of your out of your day and maybe if you have like a cross trainer or a cycling machine in your house it could be a very efficient way for you to to get work to get work done as well so i think mm-hmm. i think in general if you're training three days a week and you're doing rolling every day then probably strength is more important than cardio whereas if you're doing two or less then i would try and do both cardio and and weights and uh, i would i would you know uh, look at that but ultimately as you said the cardio that you need for jiu-jitsu especially of high level people that's because what they're doing is they're being very efficient with what they're doing and they're not using strength and they don't need to use it whereas your beginner coming onto the mat especially if you're strong you're going to use all your strength straight away because you have no technique to rely on and therefore it doesn't matter how fit you are you're going to be knackered straight away so um you know a lot of that will come about just from becoming more efficient from being doing more jiu-jitsu training as you said so a really common question we had was what method in terms of do you use kettlebells or barbells and what's better so this is an interesting one for me um i think you know put succinctly there's no difference other than the shape of metal that they've been formed into so between a kettlebell or a barbell there's the exercise you can do are very similar the form that it's going to give you neither is more functional than the other despite how they can be marketed both are definitely useful and they'll give you a range of exercises that you can use um but i, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that you should only do kettlebell or only do barbell or, you know, as with everything, the truth lies somewhere in between. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where that comes from, but a kettlebell or a barbell will give you a, a range of exercises you can do. Um, but sticking to one or the other, it, it just seems, it seems silly to me. Um, it's like saying a cupcake or a cake to stick with the food analogies. They're both cakes. They're just different <laughs> size. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think Ben, in like an ideal world, what you would do is you'd set your goals for training and then you'd look for the training method, whether that was a barbell, a dumbbell, a kettlebell, that would be the most efficient for doing whatever it is you're doing. Because um, like we just talked about that there's not much difference between kettlebells and barbells or kettlebells and dumbbells. Of course, for certain types of exercises, a kettlebell, for example, might be slightly, slightly, slightly better. For, for example, for kettlebell swings, you can do that with a dumbbell, but it feels easier to do with a kettlebell. Similarly, some overhead pressing yeah. methods can be more, uh, can feel better for your shoulders doing the kettlebell, but you can also do them with a barbell or you could also do them uh, with a dumbbell. So ideally, what you would do is you'd start with your goal and then you would choose the method of training from all the possible methods because you have no restrictions. However, in real life, what happens is People sometimes go to a gym where all they've got is barbells, all they've got is dumbbells, all they've got is kettlebells, in which case then they have to, they have the constraint of what the equipment is and they use, and they have to choose the best possible kettlebell exercise in order to improve that strength quality. So the classic one would be maximal strength, which would be like uh, how much total mass you can lift, in which case, uh, as you will tell me and most people tell you, like a barbell where you can load weights on the side is much more effective. You know, you, it's very difficult for me to do squats you know i can squat maybe 160 kilograms the heaviest kettlebell i can find is probably 60 kilograms so even two of those together is 120 which means there's a 40 kilogram deficit between what i could do with a with a kettlebell versus what i could do with a barbell plus it would be very very hard on my grip to hold two 60 kilogram kettlebells which would be one of the reasons that would limit what, what i'm able to do so it's all to do with the it's not really which which one is better which one is worse it's to do with what you have and therefore what you're going to work with but for sure if you have only kettlebells you can find good exercise improving all type of thing if you've only got dumbbells you can do the same thing or if you've uh if you've got barbells of course everything is there one particular that you think is most versatile ben if you had to only choose one if i only had to choose one i think 
I would probably press towards a barbell. Um, as you said, given the, the range that you can load it up towards and you can still do a whole number of variants of where you put the barbell. The main reason I think strength conditioning is, is tilted towards barbell training is that it offers a safe but also long-term scalable alter, uh, option for training is that you can increase um, a barbell, as we said, it, it's scalable from a 20 kilo or 15 kilo bar all the way to like relatively speaking unlimited like you on a normal barbell with normal plates you're easily getting to 220 kilos on that thing so i think yeah that's the option i would choose because it gives you then a whole range of strength uh both in terms of variations of exercise but too in terms of variations of stimulus where as you just said the heaviest kettlebell that i've ever seen is an 80 kilo and that's that's uh for one kettlebell so like you said in terms of like pushing into the realm of of really high strength and power and I think, it, you know, you may think as a smaller athlete or, it, you know, say someone like lives size, mid 50s, uh, below 60, it's even for that s sort of athlete, we still were rack pulling and deadlifting over 100, 120 kilos. So I think, you know, it, with, with good structured strength and power training, you can push into those high areas. Uh, perhaps a kettlebell would be more useful for a beginner, but if I could only choose one, I would be tilted towards a barbell because it gives us a really safe option to train done correctly. Um, and then secondly is it's, it's scalable, you know, to a really, really high, like much higher level than you can with a kettlebell. Yeah, uh, I was going to say it's really important to remember that you can definitely work with what you've got. You know, even at uh, we've actually renovated our gym now, so we, we've got a proper lifting area, but we didn't have a lot of equipment and I didn't need to be ever at the biggest gym with the most amount of equipment. I could always get some gains and and achieve my goals with whatever we had and from a physio perspective as well you know not a lot of my patients will have access to a fully equipped gym and if they don't we just you know put a put a bag of rice or two bags of rice on your hips and do some hip thrusters or uh, fill up a drink bottle of sand or water of course you can't get the you know 100 kilo type lifts for that you actually need to go to the gym but you can always do something and and get creative and i think a lot of us have with the lockdowns all around the world I mean, I totally agree with all those points. And actually interesting, you know, track and field for me would be one of the key sports where there's the, the highest use of like strength training, for example, is almost is extremely unlikely in these days in 2020s to see any person winning Olympic medal, for example, who would be training, who wouldn't be training with weight, with weights, with kettlebells, barbells, dumbbells, etc. But if you do go back to the 1970s, and 1980s, there'll be a lot of people performing extremely high level winning uh, competitions who wouldn't be doing any uh, strength training in terms of they wouldn't be doing barbells or dumbbells but often what they would be doing is they'd be doing stuff like jumps which plyometric type activity that you can do anywhere with almost anything they'd be running up hills you know they'd be doing pull-ups on a on tree trunks and stuff like this like rocky type training you know so uh, and they got very good results often uh, very very close to the world records that are now uh, now exist in some cases uh, the same or they still are the world records so for sure you can get creative with what you do the key thing is once you know what your goal is, what you want to try and improve, then you can look for the, the training method. And uh, then if you have constraints, then you have to just uh, work around the constraints that you have. Um, and is there better time to train? Uh, so specifically before or after jujitsu training? So I, from my own experience, I always try to feel fresher for jujitsu because that's where uh, my goals are. I want to be better at jujitsu. And I always, if I could, I try to do um, jujitsu first and then do strength and conditioning. However, that was 
very, very close to being impossible because of the constraints of my working day. So usually I would do a little bit of, uh, of some sessions before jiu-jitsu training and some of them were before the night session, which was a little bit lighter. So uh, even though I'm a, you know, I guess elite athlete, uh, I still couldn't do what I thought was ideal. But is there any uh, research or evidence into what's actually best? Is it before or after jiu-jitsu training? I think practically speaking, I'd be looking first at, at, at the time you have available and the energy that you have to spend. So obviously relative to when you wake up to when you go to bed, there's a certain finite amount of energy that you can spend during the day. If you can prioritize a given area, so if you can prioritize jujitsu, if that's the jujitsu day, or if you're going to prioritize doing gym, then you could do it early uh, earlier in the day or before a given activity. But I am very conscious of the inter differences between each person. Like, for me personally, like I'm someone that likes to train at night um, or, you know, to do to do work late in the afternoon. Um, but that changes around with work schedules and, and different things. So I think, yeah, given a person's time and their working schedule and their family and, and work life um, and what their energy they have to spend, again, as I've said, you know, during the podcast, I think I like to have training st- as we did with Liv stacked onto jiu-jitsu. So either she comes off the mat as long as it wasn't a killer session, she'd be pretty warm and ready to go. And we could just go straight into lifting. We'd have to muck around with, you know, mobility drills or, or going through like warm ups or whatever. It was like, all right, bang, you've come straight there. You're already sweating. You're ready to go. Let's go straight into the gym. Um, or do your warm up with S and C, get it, do it at a lower volume. And then she goes straight onto the mat and is, is ready to go from straight from the start. So again, there's, there's kind of a, a for me, it represents a, I guess two things is an efficiency of training that you can go from one thing to the other kind of seamlessly. Tom, where do you think uh, that, where would you structure SNC training uh, relative to jujitsu before or after training or in the morning or afternoon? Yeah, uh, this is a, this is a really good question. I think for your recreational athlete, I think the key thing is that you do that you do what you need to do and it doesn't matter whether it's before or after. Okay. If we're talking about uh, an elite level competitor, um, then I do think that there's certain things that you need to take into consideration. The first thing is that, uh, you you know, your sport always comes first, right? So the way that I think about it is like a cup. So you, you fill your cup and you're doing a session and you fill it half full with water. That means you've got half the cup left to fill up with something else, which could be your physical preparation. And typically, um, I would typically do that physical preparation, especially with strength training after the training session. Now, of course, if you're going to do an hour and a half of rolling and you're going to be physically exhausted then it doesn't make any sense to come off that and go straight into doing like heavyweight training that doesn't that doesn't make sense whereas if you're doing a limited number of rolls like uh if you saw what Lockie was doing for adcc he was doing three eight minute rounds with eight minutes in between them now that's going to be hard but it but when he's finished that he probably still has some energy left if he was doing snc he'd probably then if he was a if he had the time and energy he could probably then go and do some strength training in the gym especially if it was high load and low volume, so you didn't get too much metabolic uh, or you know lactic acid production from from doing that training. In terms of some other things, you know, we talked just that's, we just talked about strength training, but in terms of mobility, I definitely think it's worthwhile doing some mobility and proprioceptive work before you start training. And Liv will probably I can talk a little bit about how she does that in terms of uh, uh, in terms of preparing you know her, her knee etc. for jujitsu when we talk a bit more about her cases. But certainly you might want to do some kind of warm up and mobility and proprioception before you go on the mat. You might want to save your strength and conditioning if the training session wasn't too hard to after uh, after the the training session. Um, In terms of morning and evening, I think this is a lot down to personal preference. 
And I don't think it ma- it matters too much about when you do, um, because some people are morning people, some people are evening people. We know that. We also know it changes as you go through your teenage years versus being an adult as well. So, for example, teenagers typically need to spend more time sleeping and they tend to uh, feel better later in the day than, uh, than, a- than adults do or younger kids do. So, um, you know, that would be something that's worthwhile knowing. However, there is one instance, and this is probably, I'll talk, touch about this now, but it's something that you might want to look up. If you are a high-level uh, athlete, there's something called priming. Um, priming means that you, you, you're preparing your body for, for something uh, later on, okay? So there are some instances where you can do something before training that will improve your performance at training. A classic example of this is you can actually prime your testosterone, um, especially for, for male athletes. And a lot of rugby teams will do this where they find that uh, there's a natural flow to your testosterone levels throughout the day. And... Um, essentially your testosterone reaches a peak in early in early afternoon maybe one two o'clock around about this time um and uh and it drops off towards the end of the day so if you had a rugby match let's say six o'clock in the evening your testosterone levels would be a bit lower and they know people know from uh, research that when testosterone testosterone levels are highest is when you probably perform your best so a team like that would go and do something like they might go into the morning into the gym in the morning let's say 11 o'clock in the morning they might do a few key heavy lifts that would then stimulate testosterone production and would then mean that peak would be higher later in the day. So that testosterone peak would no longer be at one o'clock, it might be at four or five o'clock, which would be closer to game time. And so there are some examples like that, where actually doing certain types of training uh, in the morning might be beneficial. But these are very specific things, and these are probably related more to elite athletes, but it's worthwhile just dropping it in there for for people so that they uh, have a basic idea of why there might be some times in the morning that would be really better, more beneficial to train. So this is as good a place as any to recap on what we discussed so far and summarize the key take-home messages. The first take-home message is that before you start, it's important to identify what your goals are and then build a physical preparation program to address them. Many jiu-jitsu athletes will have similar goals, such as improving mobility for guard retention or improving spinal health, for example. In Liv's case, her goals were to support her knee after ACL injury and to increase her muscle mass so that she get close to the 60 kilogram limit needed for ADCC. We then turned our attention to the recreational grappler and explained that, as a jiu-jitsu practitioner, gym work might not necessarily be as hard as it would be for someone who is training purely for fitness or athletic goals, because ultimately you need to save some energy for what really matters, which is jiu-jitsu on the mat. And even elite level competitors will not necessarily train as hard for SNC as what you might expect because what they're trying to do is condition themselves enough to be competitive for jiu-jitsu because ultimately what decides the outcome of matches is usually the skill level of the two grapplers rather than some disparity in terms of physical preparation. In terms of areas of the body to focus on, jiu-jitsu is a whole body sport and therefore it's important to address all areas. However, some things you might specifically want to pay attention to are hip mobility, the need to work on spinal health, shoulder and upper back strength, as well as knee, ankle and elbow resilience. And when it comes to improving these areas, whole body compound lifts such as squat, deadlift, pull up and bench press for example can go a long way to addressing most of these areas and are therefore staples of pretty much any full body sport performance program. When it comes to whether or not push, uh, pushing or pulling movements are most important for jiu-jitsu, it's important to understand that for good shoulder health it's important to do both. However, you may want to emphasize a pulling bias in your program. When it comes to how many times a week you should train, the panel agreed that strength training can be effective even if done only once per week, and two physical preparation sessions will usually be more than enough for most people. As a recreational grappler, you probably also want to try and avoid training more than five days a week in total. 
and making sure that you have two days off in order to give you time to recover. Because remember, unlike a full-time professional grappler, you also have other things in your life that are taking up your energy. When it comes to whether cardio is useful for jiu-jitsu, the key take-home message is that you need to be fit enough to train, and if you're not getting enough rolling in to sustain your fitness levels, then additional cardio sessions may be useful. However, for the jiu-jitsu athlete that's training regularly, most people find that additional cardio doesn't necessarily improve the cardio fitness that they need on the mat. When it comes to what the best training methods are for jiu-jitsu, you can get results from any kind of external resistance. Kettlebells, dumbbells, bands, etc. Each have their own specific benefits, but all of which can be useful. In some special circumstances, however, for example, for the heavier man, you may need access to barbells specifically because only barbells can really provide enough external resistance for somebody who is in a heavier weight category who's been training for several years. With respect to whether there's a better time in the day to train, for recreational grapplers, it probably really doesn't matter. However, in most sports performance programs, typically mobility and proprioception will be done first before training, with strength training saved for after you've uh, done jiu-jitsu. However, of course, this can only be possible if you are not exhausted from rolling. If you do decide to do strength training or conditioning training before you go on the mat, it is important to make sure that you have enough energy left to train jiu-jitsu, especially if you're doing specific sparring or free rolling in that session. So hopefully you enjoyed the discussion today and we'll tune in next time when we continue to answer your questions on strength conditioning for jiu-jitsu. As always, let us know your thoughts in the comments below and remember to subscribe to the channel and hit the bell so you get notifications whenever Lockie and Liv release new content. Thanks for watching and hope to see you in the next video. So that's it for this episode. If you like the podcast but want to see the diagrams, you can get the full experience by searching Absolute MMA St. Kilda Melbourne on YouTube. See you in the next episode.